0: Okay, um, so carrying on with our day retreat, day-long retreat, and I'm actually somewhat uncertain as to how much um, of the Buddhist teachings everybody here is familiar with. So I'm just going to ask a question. I'd like, to show, I'd like a show of hands. Um, who here could name the five precepts? Can you raise it? Let me rephrase that. Who here cannot... Near the five precepts. Okay, just checking. That's uh, it's worthy of a review. Um. Yeah, exactly. See, somebody says, "Why is that important?" Uh. So this is worth mentioning. It was interesting. We did a, um, a monastic retreat with Ajahn Passano, uh, Thanksgiving retreat not long ago. And. Uh, People seemed really inspired and kind of they really enjoyed it, and they said, "You know one of the things that was so amazing was how much uh, say the precepts virtue was spoken about, and it's it's something that in American Buddhism in the West it doesn't get all that much airplay as it were and if we're going to talk about simplification, um, I'd just like to just really briefly touch on the five precepts uh, because the five precepts uh, these are not the same as, like, commandments that, say, Lord Buddha has handed down to us that we have to obey. But rather, it's just simply uh, a notion that these, breaking these five precepts leads to complexity, is one way of putting it. It uh, leads to turmoil. It uh, leads to, as I described it the other day, it's, uh, it's sort of like a, a little act of betrayal of the human community. Uh, because the five precepts, essentially, especially the first four, the four moral precepts, essentially is like you're, you're taking something that you don't have a right to take. And um, so just, we'll just review these five precepts really briefly. Uh, the first one is to ref- refrain from killing, uh, to refrain from stealing, to refrain from sexual misconduct, and I want to say, I should just point out, I just saw a sign that said, uh, that was pointing out the five precepts, and the third one was to refrain from sexual activity, and that's not actually the third precepts. That's the third precept of the eight precepts. If you come to a monastery, or if you're going to embark, say, on a, like a, a spiritual retreat, or a monastic retreat, or something like that, you might take the eight, precept, eight precepts, in which case the third precept is to refrain from sexual activity at all. But that's an act of renunciation, that's not a moral precept. But what is a moral precept is to refrain from sexual misconduct, that is, sexual activity that causes suffering to, to another being or to yourself. Okay, it's very simple. The fourth precept is to refrain from uh, lying or harsh speech, especially lying, false speech, which just causes confusion in the world, inevitably. And then the fifth precept directly is not a moral precept in that it doesn't harm others in a direct way, um, but it's to refrain from drugs and alcohol, um, which, is a moral pre- which is a precept in the sense that when you're under the influence, uh, say, especially of alcohol, but of any drug or anything that causes heedlessness, you're that much more likely to break the other precepts. So you just think, I'd like, you know, I often just think to yourself, if, if, and I'm not, inc- I'm not suggesting prohibition is a good thing, but if there was no alcohol in the world, just how much less suffering there would be in this universe, quite a bit. So the reflection of these five precepts, um, this is just, it's basically a sound sort of code of conduct uh, that really is applicable whatever your belief system is, you know, whether you're Christian or Buddhist or atheist, or whatever. It seems like a very sound, you know, there's, not, there's none of this um, commanding that you believe in the Buddha, for instance, or... Um, It's just basically a commitment to not harm fellow beings uh, to the best of our ability. So, the reason I just wanted to mention that is in terms of simplifying, um, this is often a starting place because sort of just getting getting this part of our life, you know, in, in terms of Buddhist practice, this can be, this is a legitimate part of Buddhist practice. And I mean, just this much can take a lifetime to get you, to kind of get under your control. And, um, what a worthy thing to do, to be able to find a sense of uh, contentment and peace within the framework of the five precepts. That's a very valid, legitimate, and beautiful goal for, for a practitioner. And the, re- the other thing that's nice to reflect about that is because sometimes with meditation, uh, you can sometimes think, especially if you've been meditating a long time and the mind doesn't seem to be getting peaceful and you're still con- more confused than you ever were, um, well, the one thing you can always come back to is is these precepts. I mean, this is something that can be very like, a very good foundation, and uh, something you can can be content with. You know, you're not harming other beings. It's something you very be very proud of, actually. <clears throat> but these this thirty minutes, I just wanted to touch on that. But now I'd like to go into what I think my part was to talk about letting go a lot. This morning was letting go a little, and now it's supposed to be letting go a lot. And uh, the way I'd like to talk about letting go a lot... Um, let's see. Okay, so Ajahn with this morning, in letting go a little, it was sort of focusing on your relationship with the external world, um, kind of valuing simplicity, a simple lifestyle. Um, working on uh, on ways to your relationship with the requisites, say with food and with clothing and and uh, shelter. Sort of cultivating an attitude of contentment with what you have, with what you need. You know, recognizing that there's a lot of people in this world with a lot less than we have, and uh, just appreciating what we have. Um, The first part of this level of simplicity that I'm going to speak about is bringing simplicity into the present moment. And we do this through mindfulness. And mindfulness is the simple act of being aware of what we're doing here and now. So that's whether we are, say, walking somewhere, driving somewhere, Sitting, uh, doing the dishes, um, whatever it is that we're doing, to simply do do one thing at a time, and we are masters of multitasking. It seems, and I know somebody. I mean, a good uh, woman, a woman that I know, um, you know, is under the impression that multitasking is really like her talent, and she just loves it and she can do a hundred things at once. <laughs> and um, and she, it never even occurred to her that this is creating a certain level of agitation underneath her level of consciousness. In fact, she's incapable of doing anything but multitasking. <laughs> and um, so what's, what mindfulness is doing on this level is sort of recognizing, okay, what, what's the purpose of my activity right now? And uh, having a clear sense that, okay, right now the purpose is to wash this one dish. You know, And you simply wash the one dish and you put it aside. Um, you don't have to do it in slow motion. Um, <laughs> but you don't have to do it like super efficient. <clears throat> it's just a matter of doing one dish. And the peace and the beauty of that comes when uh, all that energy that we normally have going in the background that is sort of thinking ahead and trying to absolutely maximize the efficiency of what we're doing to the point of where it sometimes just causes us to be completely inefficient. When that sort of energy ceases and the energy and awareness comes into the present moment and you can just appreciate Um, just the present moment. I mean, you're just washing a dish. It's a very simple activity. You're putting it away. And like I was saying earlier, to some people that will sound boring, uh, simply being mindful with the present moment. Uh, But that's because we are, at at the time we experience it as boring, at that moment we are, we could say, detoxifying. And we are um, going through withdrawal symptoms of multitasking. So... We have to, this is a part of our practice uh, from time to time to put effort, uh, a certain kind of effort and energy into simply slowing down and doing one thing and one thing well. And it's extremely satisfying, you know, whatever it is. Just do one simple thing completely and well. And it's like, yeah, right, that's very actually very agreeable. You know, there's no sense of conflict in that moment. And then you go on to the next thing, one thing, and do it one thing, and do one thing well. And this is a, this is a kind of long process of, of, uh, of practice and, and training. Uh, but it's an important part of, of spiritual practice. And an important part of simplifying one's, one's life and one's mind. <clears throat> and this goes under the heading of letting go a lot simply because if this aspect is done well, it, it really is quite it takes quite a lot of letting go to do something well. Uh, there's there's such a tendency, so deeply ingrained in us, to to rush through things and to to be in some kind of automatic Pilot mode, where we're just going automatically, and we're just going through the day, you know. And basically, what's happening there is, is our life is sort of passing us by. Um, The the hours and the days, it's just the kind of going through, and we're not really experiencing any kind of immediate um, the moment and the fullness of what life is in the present moment. Uh, We're just very much an autopilot. So it it's it's a big it takes a, it takes quite a bit of commitment to to develop this. Um, the other aspect of letting go a lot, and this was like this morning I said we kind of tricked you into coming um, through t- saying it was about simplicity. I do want to talk about uh, letting go on the material level, and this is like renunciation. And. Renunciation. What I'm. What I mean by this is simply. Excuse me. Um, those things that we do in our lives, that create complexity. Um, those experiences that we have this, this great desire to just simply have for me and my own experience and my own sort of especially sensual gratification, uh, it can create a lot of turmoil in our lives as we kind of struggle to, to get this experience and to get the, the object and to, to maintain it and to keep it. And renunciation is a, a very simple act of, of taking contentment to a deeper level where we're saying, you know, this particular thing, I can either A, do without it uh, completely, or B, I can just do without my my next hit of that experience. And it's something to really cultivate and practice um, from time to time. Uh, In the monasteries we have, uh, traditionally in Buddhism, we have one day a week. It's usually every half moon, so about every seven or eight days. Uh, People will come to the monastery and they will take eight precepts, which is similar to the five precepts I just said, except the third one is celibacy for a day rather than sexual misconduct. And then there's three renunciation precepts, so to refrain from eating after midday, which is not anywhere near as hard as it sounds, <laughs> uh, truly. And then the other one is to refrain from listening to music or entertainment, worldly entertainment. Uh, also, to refrain from uh, beautification, so makeup and earrings, things like that. Just go a day without that, one day a week. This is a struggle. This is difficult, because so much of our sense of who we are uh, depends on these sort of external symbols. And then the third one is to refrain from, it's, the way it's phrased, it's to sleep on a higher, luxurious sleeping place. So in the Buddha's days, a high bed Think of a high, soft, cushy bed it was something that was quite exceptional, sort of a sign of luxury. Um, but even today, if you think about the world, the world over, you know, what is it, six billion people? To me, it's a it's a beautiful act to to cultivate just one day a week to sleep on the floor, as an act of renunciation. It's an act of saying, look, you know, this is the way half the planet sleeps, and why, why can't I? experience something as simple as this. So it's an, it's an act of renunciation. There's nothing particularly special about that particular kind of act, but the spirit is simply to, to test yourself and to work on letting go of things that normally are either sources of sensual pleasure or personal security uh, to just test the waters to see if you can do without it. And you'll often surprise yourself. And you'll often find it's actually extremely invigorating to to break the patterns and the habits that you have of kind of addictive consumption of various odds and ends. Now, I just want to add as well, this came up not long ago with, with somebody staying in the monastery, just mentioning how, but you know when they renounce certain things or Kind of contain the senses, they just feel depressed, and I can understand that. And I think, I think when uh, when we talk about renunciation, you have to uh, not be idealistic. Don't get some kind of ideal that you're going to renounce this, that, and that, and that. You know, for the next six months, as a way of cultivating contentment, and uh, and be mindful as to how it affects you, because if it if it leads to unwholesome mind states. If it leads to a sense of kind of depression, or you're not really, you don't feel that you you don't feel the sense of purpose in your life, um, then you're not using it in the right way. So when I talk about the value of renunciation, it's not renunciation for its own sake; it's renunciation for the sake of cultivating wholesome mind states. That's why we do it. If it doesn't have that effect, then you shouldn't be doing it. Um, So I was thinking, uh, like somebody was saying how they have, you know, for them it's so important that they feel passionate about something, passionate about some activity that they can give themselves to. And, uh, and I can appreciate that, and I can see, see the need for that in the world. And, but when we're talking about, say, renunciation one way of thinking of it is when simplicity itself becomes your passion. Uh, when you feel that, when you feel a sense of love for simplicity and a sense like, you know, it's so beautiful to just simply be present and do one thing at a time, that's actually what I, that's because, that's extremely important in my life. And when that's, when you feel that, then you're really ready for renunciation. And it's it's really something to for you to kind of settle into to some extent just to start testing yourself. Um, but the last level of letting go a lot that I just wanted to mention, touch on is is meditation. And in meditation, what you're letting go of there's many different kinds of meditation, but uh, in something called samatha meditation, which is Known as tranquility meditation or calmness, Uh, what you're letting go of is the external world. And this is a kind of letting go and simplicity where you, the mind which normally wants to go out, different objects, and think about various things, wants to plan, that's a big one, wants to worry, that's another big one. you train the mind to, to let that go and to simply be present with a very simple experience such as the breath. With mindfulness, say in daily activity, it's a bit easier, the objects are coarser. Be mindful of washing the dishes, like I said, or mindful of walking from point A to point B. But with meditation, we're really taking the simplicity to... To the most fundamental level, the simplicity of the breath. So, what we have here, sitting, is a human body. And when I close my eyes, there's only a few sensations that are available to me. There's, I can be aware of thought, there's feeling in the body. So, like the breath is kind of, I can feel the belly rise and fall. I can feel energy in, various, in the limbs kind of moving around. And then there's sound. I can hear sound. Usually very peaceful sound because I live in a monastery. Um, and that's it. So you close your eyes and it's like such an incredible... There's just a, a body that is experiencing the senses. And it's, that's all it is. And mindfulness or awareness is that which is aware of what the body is experiencing. And normally we get, as the mind thinks, get caught up in the content of thought and mood. And in mindfulness we want to, rather than focusing on the content, we want to observe the process and stand back from the content and just observe it as though it were uh, well, as though it weren't as though it weren't yours, you know. Which in fact it isn't. But we'll get to that later. Um, you know, every single one of us we we have we're all having the exact same experience in a way. We have a body and a mind, and there's awareness which is observing it. And just the details are a little bit different, you know. Different emotions for this person, that person has different thoughts, but basically the structure of body and mind uh, is the same. So in terms of samatha practice, tranquility practice, uh, this is what we're letting go of our obsession and attachment to the external world. And this doesn't mean that we're going to throw away the external world. I'm not saying that we should dismiss the fact that there are certain things we value in the external world, certain things that we, we care for. Um, but in tranquility meditation, it's like we're just okay. If just for these thirty minutes or for one day, we're just going to put that down, so that we can come inwards and be with ourselves and observe what it's like, just as a human organism, which has thoughts and feelings, and just to be with that. Later on, the, uh, when we talk about letting go completely, we have to rely on this ability to observe the body and observe the mind uh, for the sake of developing understanding. But at this stage, we're just developing tranquility and calm, contentment, ease, relaxation, but not a slothful relaxation. You know, it's, a very, it's a very energetic, uh, alert, Vibrant relaxation that we're trying to cultivate. So it's one o'clock, and uh, I was going to talk for 30 minutes till one o'clock, and then we were going to have a meditation for 45 minutes. And this is going to be, you know, for some of us who just maybe overeat. This is possible, even though I said you shouldn't. <laughs> um, even if you didn't overeat, it's it's possible that you'll be kind of full, and a lot of the energy goes into the process of digestion. This is natural. So we have to, when we're meditating at this time of day, after a meal. Um, Sort of especially attentive, even more so than usual. Especially vigilant, to to be aware of any sign of a sort of lazy mind state that might arise at this time. So you have to, if you're going to be doing this meditation, there has to be that kind of vigilance. Um, I like to think of it as as you're sort of, in the same way that, for some reason, I have an image of uh, being on a highway and looking for a car coming in the distance. And you're, maybe you're hitchhiking or something. You're looking for some car that might be coming. Um, in the same way, we want to be okay. Where is sloth and torpor going to rear its ugly head? <laughs> um, in in meditation, we have the five. We speak about the five hindrances, uh, a theme that I think many of us will be familiar with. The Buddhists spoke about the five hindrances in meditation. Uh, the first one is greed or sensual desire. The second one is ill will, hatred, irritation. The third one is sloth and torpor. That's the one that's going to most likely arise now. The fourth one is restlessness and worry. Uh, and then the fifth one is doubt. You know, what should I meditate on? Why Why am I doing this? <laughs> What's the point? Um, so these five hindrances, It's it's kind of good to, if you ever feel a sense of freedom from these five hindrances. One, it's, it's extremely <clears throat> peaceful and it's not the kind of peacefulness that comes from like sleeping. It's the peacefulness that arises from uh, just, an, uh, just a tremendous alertness and sense of completion within. <clears throat> so greed, ill will, sloth and torpor, restlessness, doubt. These are the cars that are in the distance, in the distant highway that we want to be on the lookout for. And as soon as we sense they might arise, we want to say, no, no, I'm not going to go there. Okay, so let's sit here mindfully. um, Bringing attention to the breath. Attention to the Mind. Putting a sense of energy into the posture. This is important. Not st- not like stiff or uptight, but just you know, fully upright. It's a sense of full uprightness. Completely balanced. Totally relaxed, but completely awake and comfortable. and just letting go of the external world bringing attention to to the body and what the body is experiencing knowing that on one hand there is awareness and on the other hand there is experience which is moving through awareness In constant change, there's nothing that is still or stable in consciousness. There's nothing but movement. And we're developing that alertness, clarity, precision... Which rests in the present moment. And just one note if you do feel drowsy or a bit dull, you may find it helpful to open the eyes. And the goal is not to create a state of peace in the body or mind, but the goal is to be aware, develop clarity of awareness. And peace will come by itself. Remember not to get lost in the content of thought, but to observe the process using the body and the breath as the foundation for awareness it's like the anchor It can happen that simplicity can be taken to almost um, like otherworldly levels, really, to some extent, where everything becomes so still and quiet that there's just, there's just the object and consciousness. That's all that one experiences, just these, I don't even want to call it two things. But it's a very deep sense of contentment and quietness, inner quietness. just like clouds move through space. So you can think of thoughts and feeling as simply formations that are moving through consciousness with their own structure of cause and effect that you can just observe. Just flowing. So one thing to to recognize, very important to recognize in meditation, is if you have moments, even just brief moments, where the mind is free from those five hindrances that I spoke about, if you can remember what those five are, um, and to just notice what a wonderful experience that is. And whenever the mind drops into a hindrance, it usually doesn't recognize it. And it's easy, let's say you drop into dullness, it's easy to think that, oh, meditation is so boring, or what am I doing? You know, this is, this is um, you forget what you're doing, or something like that. And you don't realize that what's happened is a hindrance has arisen, and you've bought into it, and you're, you're playing along, you're following the hindrance, as opposed to recognizing this is a hindrance, and this is something that is actually, the point of meditation is to, to observe this and to let it go. So to let the hindrance sort of wash through you and, and move through you and, and carry on. It's a whole process of learning how to meditate is to deal with these hindrances in a skillful way. And, and it's, a, it's a tricky thing because um, sometimes these hindrances can be pretty uh, persistent. And you have to really be committed to, to kind of working with it. And uh, it's a, it's, you know, it's a challenge. It's a, it's a, but that's what makes the, the spiritual path so interesting um, is that it is a challenge. When we come across these obstacles that we have to, these obstacles, basically, we've created them, you know, through the choices that we've made through our life. This is the, the law of karma. You know, we go through our life and we make choices and we, we act in certain ways. We, go to certain events, we associate with certain people. The effect is, our mind is conditioned by the choices that we make. And then we experience the results in our meditation. So that's why it's important to take mindfulness and and use wisdom when we make choices in life. And then also to use mindfulness and clarity and observation to observe the results of our actions which is what we do in meditation. So that's letting go a lot, is uh, letting go of the external world, letting go of the five hindrances, and learning how to really enjoy and really appreciate a simple, pure experience of something as simple as the breath, or as simple as the body, or as simple as consciousness, which is just still and open. Now we could. we're going to do some walking. I wonder, is
1: it raining now? I
0: don't think it's raining actually. The walk, I was there seemed to be a lot of interest in questions and answers. What do you think we should do? Should we just make, we could stretch for five ten minutes, enough Q and A. Sure. Yeah. Okay. So what uh, we were going to have a walking session now, but uh, it seemed earlier that there was a lot of interest in some questions and answers. So maybe what we could do is we could just. Uh, Kind of change postures for a few minutes, stretch, uh, stretch the body. uh, Take a break for say five minutes, and then come back and we'll have some questions and answers.
1: Is that a good idea? Yeah, I think my only concern is that it might interfere with you. Well, no, no, it might make a very long. another break, just a short break, and
2: then just a lot of
0: uh, sit-in, but I don't know. Maybe after my reflections, after Agenyatico, at 3 o'clock, we can have a is your mic on. It is, actually. Okay. Okay, so we thought uh we'd uh there seemed to be a lot of questions uh earlier on this morning, so thought we'd carry on with some Q and A. Uh so there's a question right there. <laughs>
3: I imagine this is a fairly frequent question in our culture and I wonder about this and then I think well maybe it's because our culture is different from the culture in which the hindrances were first um, described but why is it one of the hindrances um, the feeling that we reinforce in ourselves so much in our culture of uh, victimization and feeling sorry for yourself and feeling that others have wronged you and you know it, it seems to me in our culture that we waste Hours of time in that kind of behavior. And it certainly comes up in meditation.
0: Right. Um, well, I don't know the exact reason. I mean, I could give you theories, perhaps. Um, I mean, we, uh, there's certain strands, say, of the Christian uh, tradition, which sometimes can provoke a sense of guilt in people. I mean, I think that's certainly a root, possibly. But whatever the reason is, I don't think we should worry too much about why. But what we want to focus on in meditation anyways is simply the clarity of mind which can observe those, those feelings arising and then not identifying with it. Now, that's not to say that there's not something that has to be investigated and understood on a psychological level. Because uh, very often uh, we have been victimized and something has happened to us that needs to be processed. And it's, uh, I don't think it's necessarily the case, it certainly is not the case that meditation is a cure-all for all problems. So that's an important thing to, to remember. But what it is, is certainly whatever our past experiences, the skill of meditation, what we're trying to do is to not identify with the thoughts, not identify with the feelings, not to analyze them, That may be something that's useful outside of meditation in another context, but not during our meditation. We want feelings, thoughts to arise and to let them go and pass away. And we might find that through not identifying and not making stories around me and my problems, that actually that will solve some of our problems. But again, not necessarily, and it depends on individuals' experiences.
1: Want to add to that. yeah, just just to add a little thought to that too that I mean essentially, I totally agree with exactly what Ageniatico said. Um, and also just as um, as you're looking at that uh, conglomeration of thoughts and feelings that are around the, the experience of victimization or guilt or whatever that. You know, that, that there might be components of some of those other hindrances within that. You know, I can think of you know, an aspect of that that might include aversion or irritation or uh, resistance or possibly anger at the thought of somebody having hurt you. And that's kind of part of that second hindrance of aversion or irritation. Or there might be some sense of uh, restlessness of uh, things shouldn't be this way, this isn't right, this isn't fair. Um, and, and that's kind of a form of the restless mind that's, uh, not, you know, accepting that, you know, some things like this happen in the world, um, and trying to either blame someone else or blame ourselves or, um, you know, find some sort of, as, as Ajahnatika was saying, some sort of, you know, logistical reason for, for it or, or that it shouldn't be this way or whatever, um. So there might be some components of those actual five hindrances within that that process that you're talking about. Um, but totally, you know, the, the idea is to not necessarily get too wrapped up into the analysis of it and the, trying to figure out exactly what it is or where it comes from, you know, but just to, you know, to experience it, feel it in the body as it affects, as affects one, and to um, try and see it in a greater light of, of an experience that's it you know, can be met with kindness and with withholding with gentleness and, and not pushing it away, um, knowing it and letting it go on its own.
4: Hi. Um I'm having kind of a block. I I'm a graduate student in engineering education, and I'm researching the importance of complex problems to teach engineering students so that they can kind of recognize that engineering is in this wider world. And so I kinda I've been like, my mind is everything is interconnected. Um like we every all our actions interconnect with each other. And I'm having difficulty like just focusing on the breath and not thinking this is a process of me letting go of something or it's this is a complex problem. And um I just kind of wanted to know your thoughts and opinions on that.
0: Well, it's the result of your conditioning. (laughs) I mean, if you spend all day, all week, for months and years analyzing complex problems and analyzing interconnectedness, that's what you bring to meditation. And um, I think meditation, it would be very good for you probably to... uh, Two ways of looking at it. One is to to develop the space where you can put all those perceptions and ideas and biases down, okay, and just put them down and experience in a very kind of raw, bare way what's the present moment, rather than jumping into thought and saying, okay, it's all interconnected. You know, that's immediately memory. It's based on memory, uh, based on what you've learned. Um, maybe it is, maybe it isn't. But what you can say is that this experience is like this. And that's all you have to do. Anything more than that is complicating things. Um, but then the other thing is is like I was saying earlier, sometimes an effort to to just be an effort to just be simple in the present moment sometimes just doesn't work. And the mind just refuses to settle. In which case you have to settle, sit back, and let the mind go and just recognize this is okay. And this is the result of its conditioning. It's not me. Uh, it has nothing to do with my problems. It's just simply, this is what a mind does when it spends so many hours a day analyzing complex problems. And not to identify with it. Um, and, and that will gradually, over the years, that will create help condition a sense of greater simplicity in the mind. And s- simplicity, let's not be uh, vague here. I don't mean like inability to deal with complexity. Right? That's not what simplicity is. Simplicity is the ability to experience completely the present moment.
3: Yes, hi. Um, how do I let go of the demand to be enlightened and <coughs> to have my suffering end?
0: What was that? I'm sorry. Yeah, how do I let
3: go of uh, being this demand to be enlightened.
0: The demand to be enlightened?
3: Yeah, I do have these... Demands? (laughs) Yeah. And I I read, I listen, I try to educate myself, and yet I am not enlightened. I do have suffering, uh, and I do experience it, and I get frustrated and upset. Why do I still experience it? I want to be enlightened, and I'm not.
0: Right. Okay. Well, uh, two things. One, I just want to say... Sometimes it's said, like, in, in the West you hear this a lot, like, okay, uh, the desire to be enlightened is a desire, and therefore that's a hindrance. And I kind of agree, I see what they're saying, but I, I want to just point out that the desire to be enlightened is a very beautiful, wholesome desire. So I don't want to in any way dismiss or, or kind of say that you shouldn't have that desire. As far as desires in the world are concerned... That's one that's beautiful and wonderful. So give yourself a break on that level. Um, But then on the other level, it's also true that that desire... uh, In one sense, you actually want to cultivate that desire. Uh, I'm speaking in general. People should cultivate the desire for enlightenment. I think it's a very wholesome desire. And it should be encouraged in our culture, in our families, in our lives. Uh, But then you'll also notice uh, it's one of those desires that uh, it's self-correcting because excuse me um, right, you get frustrated when you're not enlightened. It's a very kind of simple process and it's that very suffering. When you're engaged in the process when the mind is awake, alert you're looking at the present moment experience and there's frustration because you're not yet enlightened that's a time to let it go but when, you, when you're thinking about your life, organizing your priorities, thinking about your values, enlightenment really should be, uh, I'm suggesting, should be at the top of the list. But when you sit down and meditate, and there's that striving and pushing, that's not the time to cultivate it. If you're starting to fall asleep, then that's the time to cultivate it. <laughs> So uh.
1: And just um, if I may, uh, just uh, watching that mind that's impatient and wanting it here and now, and not uh, you know not giving it the space to develop in its own way, because a lot of what we do in practice is is I mean it was just the word that Ajahnataka used, it's cultivation. So we prepare the ground, we sow the seeds, we water the plant, we take the weeds out as best we can, but. We don't reach it down and try and yank the the plant up. You know, if we if we reach down and take this tiny little seedling and try and yank it up and make it grow faster, then it's going to, by nature, then we just destroy it. So we have to to sow the seed and cultivate the ground, um, but not rush the process. We have to allow it to unfold in its own natural way, and that's going to be totally dependent on you know, what you've brought to the present moment, your, your history, you know, all the uh, inclinations from the past, and that's really variable for, for people. Some people, it's a, most people, it's a, it's a long process. So patience. Okay.
2: Did you have an update on Ajahn Amaro?
0: <laughs> Where's the questioner?
1: He's over, right, that's uh, Frank.
0: An update on Ajahn, oh. Ajahn Amaro? Just we, that he's, he's doing pretty good. <laughs>
1: <laughs> pretty good? Pretty good. I mean, I haven't heard much, actually. Not recently. He's no. Ensconced at Amravati, being the abbot and doing his thing. <laughs> yeah.
2: Okay, thank you. You're welcome. <laughs> Hello. Um, Hello. My whole life, since I was very little, I've been a worrier. You know, I'm just worried about the future, the past, everything. And um, whether I'm happy to be where I'm at or not, worry, it's just, it's always there. And um, I was wondering, like, meditation is one thing, but in the moment, like, if you have any, any, like, suggestions or things you've done for when that starts to, like, you know, for when you're trying to do your dish, but something else comes into your head. And it's like, how do you... I don't know do you have any i, I you've s- spoken a lot about it but i'm just curious
1: if you have anything else go ahead okay um sure um <laughs> just slide aside before i get to the point of the of the question is is that uh i remember an occasion where i my third year as a monk i went to a uh, chithurst monastery which is in england and spent a year there and uh there was another monk and I sharing a day room um, during the day. And after a few weeks of not really, it was my, it was my first time there and we had just met each other. And uh, after a few weeks of not talking a whole lot, just sort of kind of feeling each other's vibes out he, and chatting a little bit, uh, one afternoon we were sitting there quietly and he, he looks up at me and he says, You're a warrior, aren't you? And I said... A warrior. Yeah, I never really thought of myself as a you not know, spiritual warrior, you know. <laughs> and so, and uh, I was just kind of puzzled, and I, and I looked and I said, "I said, well, I, you know, I never really thought of myself in that in that line." And and he said, "Well, he says I could tell that you are because I'm a warrior too. I worry a lot, <laughs> <laughs> and you do too." <laughs> I, oh, he was just saying a warrior. <laughs> So he picked up on something that was a, you know, a trait of mine. So I can totally identify. You know, that worry is a, you know, it's a real kind of hindrance. It's a real feeling, um, an experience, um, and something that actually a lot of people deal with. Uh, and you know, whatever its causes, whatever its roots, um, you know, in uh, it's sort of a, a delusion-based hindrance. Um, not seeing things clearly um, uh, kind of imputing a lot of uh, unrealities on on the world around us um, but it's it, it's a you know it's a unpleasant emotional state um, and I think actually just r- recognizing it just as that um, and not and, and just reminding oneself over and over and over again, not to believe in the object uh, of the worry. Because, it, you know, with a lot of these emotional states, and I find it's really true, particularly with anxiety or worry, uh, or fear-based emotions or things like that, it's, it's kind of this underlying habit or this underlying tendency that um, is searching for an object, you know, and it might find one, you know, and it'll find one <laughs> eventually. Um, and then, you know, then there's this kind of sense of uh, solidification or identification around it because it's found some sort of object to attach itself to and live its life you know, in the real world, you know, oh, okay, now I've found the reason for it, ah, you know, um, then you can really move into it uh, and make it a real, exper- real experience. Um, but if you can just keep it back on the level of the experience of the anxiety or the worry itself and kind of just don't believe the object that you've attached it to, um, then that will go a long way in towards dispelling the resistance or suffering around it. Um, and the way that I find is the best way to do that, as with any kind of strong emotion, is by feeling and experiencing it in the body. Because what the mind wants to do is go to a mental construct or an object, or a situation, or a something to put put it onto. Um, but if you just keep it right in the here and now, keeping it in the simple experience of, of the feeling itself, as you can experience it in the body, whether it's a tightening in the gut, or a pounding of the heart, or a, you know, a tension in the in in the the head behind the eyes, whatever it is, just. Tune back into the body, and there has to be a willingness to also be with that unpleasant sensation. Because what we don't want to experience is that unpleasantness in the physical body that's related to this this you know, mental state of worry. That's what we're trying to do away with by finding an object to pin it onto, or something to explain it away, or you know, some way to to externalize it. Um, but if we allow ourselves to you know, bear with it as a physical feeling, as a feeling, you know, um, and can just say, okay, I'm brave enough to just be with this, you know, pounding heart or this tension in the head or whatever, this, you know, incredibly tight gut. If I'm willing to be with that and just breathe with it and not push it away and just to hold it with a lot of space and uh, kindness, then it just goes a whole long way in terms of simplifying the whole experience. And then, if you can attend to it in that way and watch it live its life out, then you don't have to find an object to pin it onto. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah.
0: Somebody right there has been back here. Yeah, just straight ahead, down. Yeah.
4: Um, so, I kind of, a, a, I guess, a response to that, and then a related question. Um. Which is I, I, I can totally identify with that as well um, And I guess one thing that I would add from my experience in it and I want to hear your guys response to it is uh, kind of working through it I, you know it's like kind of a combination of an emotion and like a thought habit. so like there's some emotional turmoil which kind of like is in this feedback loop with the th- with uh, an ability to like take an object and hold it and deconstruct it, and, and that's, like, there's a lot of value in, the, like, just being able to do that. I mean, you can make something really good out of that. Like, so it's not, you know, like, the gift and the curse kind of are connected. Um, and uh, so the related question was, uh, I was actually, uh, I was, like, cleaning out my bookcase yesterday and uh, it's, like, kind of symbolic in a way. Like, read all these books, right, and kind of culling the herd. Like, what, <laughs> of all that I've read, what do I think is worthwhile and what, I, what do I think is worth throwing out? Um, and I was just kind of thinking as I was, like, stacking them, you know, getting them ready to sell or whatever, like, I feel like I've kind of been stumbling through the woods for uh, a couple of years now in a good way in a good direction um but there's but like stumbling out of the woods onto this path that has been well worn for like 2500 years um and just like this kind of voice of like quit trying to figure it out yourself dude just 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 walk the path and shut up um what would you in, in uh, what advice would you have for a layperson? Like, I feel like from an academic point of view, I can be like, okay, I am going to go to this, this university. I am going these are the requirements. I can take these classes, and I know I realize that this is like a different kind of this is not the achieving kind of thing, but structure and accountability in a spiritual life. Where do I get that?
0: Did you say structure and accountability?
4: Yeah, in a, in a lay, lay person spiritual life.
0: Well, I think whether you're a lay person or a monastic, uh, the path is, is similar in some ways. It's sila samadhi panya, for those who are familiar with those terms. And uh, uh, it's really just a matter of finding an environment that can support your practice of, let's say, virtue and uh, support your practice of meditation where you can get regular... It's really important to find an environment where you can get inspiration and somebody who basically really affirms your spiritual values because because there's not much of it in the world. And uh, it takes some searching. And then it also takes a lot of discernment. I mean... um, So here, where my monkish uh, biases may come through... There's there's the, the suttas that the Buddha taught, and these are very important part of of uh, spiritual practice for for one level of Buddhist practice. And uh, for somebody who's very who's really interested in walking and cultivating the Eightfold Path, it's really important to understand what the Eightfold Path is. And it's not just a matter of, you know, like meditating and just sort of doing what feels right. Um there's actually a very defined path that actually takes structure, and uh, and commitment. So it, it, it's kind of a ger- general answer, but not knowing the specifics of people's lives and so forth, I can't get too specific. But um, you know, it's a matter of of uh, first learning learning about the path on on the level of understanding and memory to be able to remember it, to know what it is. Uh, then sort of putting the rubber to the road and kind of uh, working at it and then experience it. And that's basically all I can really say. Somebody here? a question.
5: I feel like this morning I just sort of rolled out of bed and came here and you know, sat down, and it's time to meditate, and I'm dealing with a lot of stiff back problems and pain, and I was just wondering, from your point of view, do
4: you, do you endorse stretches or do you endorse sitting here and, you know, feeling your body and getting comfortable with your creaks?
0: Both.
1: <laughs> the answer is yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah.
0: Yeah, you start out, it's, it's fair enough if you're not used to meditating, it feels stiff, feels a bit awkward. There are certain tricks you learn, like, you know, it helps your little cushion uh, to sit on. It often kind of raises the, your center of gravity, and it's easier on the knees and the hips. Um, stretching is is invaluable. There's all kinds of very valuable stretches that you can research and, and learn about. Very simple ones I won't go into now, but... but uh, and just a note, I'm sitting with pain. Pain can be a very useful tool. Um, but It can also be a sign that there's something wrong. So, uh, I'm, I don't think any of us are really an advocate of sitting through pain uh, mindlessly. And if you are feeling pain, say in the knees or the hips, and if you know your body, if you've been meditating for years, you know yourself well, and you say, okay, this pain is not dangerous, then it's it can be very educational to sit through it. Um, if you're not sure, if you you feel wait a minute, I might be stretching, I might be causing damage to my knees or something, then don't sit through that, and don't hesitate to change postures. It's two fifteen. I wonder if we should, uh, if you want to, give a talk now.
1: Or are we gonna do any? Sp- or
0: should we go outside for a while?
1: Yes. I hear a little bit of outside. Let's go outside. Get some fresh air. Get some fresh air and uh, reconvene in 15. Sounds good, yeah. A short stretch, a short walk, breathe, do a little bit of walking meditation if you, if you want to take some time just to choose a path of 20, 30 steps, go back and forth for a little while, wake up the mind. Just 230. Yeah, 230, 235, a short, a short walk. And if you can, this was a phrase I heard Ajinyataka use once, make it a walking meditation, not a wandering meditation. (laughs) So really try and practice mindfulness being right here, right now, not losing your uh, awareness. Okay, so coming back into uh, the meditation hall and settling back down hopefully with a little bit of clarity fresh air, clearing out the brain settle back down into the sitting posture and Moving back into the body. So the teaching of the Buddha um, ultimately points to this um, total ending, this total cessation of um, <clears throat> dissatisfaction, of suffering, uh, unsatisfactoriness, stress. Different words that have been used to um, describe a complete state of freedom that uh, that really uh, is a potential. Uh, for the For the human life um, and it it's it's based on this whole quality of of letting go completely that we were sort of leading to hinting at moving towards um, the uh, subtitle for this uh, uh, this day long was um, in addition it, 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 uh, we had the simplicity and and um, Transcendence, and the subtitle being uh, Freedom's Just Another Word for Nothing Left to Lose. (laughs) So those of you who are of a similar generation will recognize that as uh, a line from uh, Chris Christopherson, more more popularized by Janis Joplin, (laughs) Uh, me and Bobby McGee. But uh, that aside, um, I thought it's just a real nice... um, a way of saying it. It's uh, uh, when, when we've let go completely, when we have nothing left to relinquish, nothing left to, to give up, n- nothing that we're holding on to, nothing that we're clinging to, attaching to, um, as a basis for any kind of refuge, when that process is complete, then there's freedom. And it's not that we can't experience that in little bits along the way, that, that uh, hint of, of freedom, that sense of what it might be <coughs> like to let go completely, but until, uh, until we've experienced it in a very deep way, it's, it's a, um, <coughs> a perception that we can cultivate. Uh, that is a basis for faith in the practice, keeps us going. And maybe a little bit later, when we have another guided meditation, I might just go into a few of the descriptions that the Buddha has uh, for that state of complete freedom, Nibbana, as we call it in the Pali, Nirvana in Sanskrit. Um, Because it's not addressed in huge quantities in the canon. Most of the time the Buddha spent on looking at the... uh, the causes of our suffering, the ways that we do it, and uh, the skillful process, the path leading to the ending of that suffering, um, and actual descriptions of the, of the final goal are, are there for sure, but uh, not, not in huge quantity. Um, and that's because of its near indescribability in words and conventional language. Um, but a little bit later on, might just uh, give a few of those descriptors that he's uh, that he's given to us. Um, but there is this path uh, leading to this um, understanding and to this realization, um, and we've talked about some of the foundational practices: the the letting go a little bit, uh, and the practice of uh, bhavana or uh, meditation, contemplation. Um, simplicity and taking an object to to still the mind and and induce a a very peaceful, open uh, awareness. Um, And it's from these bases in the practice that we can also embark on a process of investigation um, to develop insight uh, and to start moving along the path to letting go completely. Uh, But it's based on this combination of both stillness of mind, concentration, uh, coupled with some um, sincere uh, investigation um, and development of insight. It's this combination of these two factors that uh, can lead us to a deeper state of understanding and release. Uh, And they go hand in hand. You know, there's a lot of discussion about, uh, you know, do you fully need to develop uh, the states of concentration first, uh, you know, uh, calmness, samatha practice, uh, before you can do any investigation, before you can do any insight practice. Um, And some people will present arguments that that's the case, and others will say, well, uh, you can um, develop both at the same time, it's um, often been likened to picking up a stick with two ends, one being investigation, one being um, calm and developing calm. Uh, you pick up one and you pick up the other. So they can be developed um, uh, hand in hand. Um, you need the stability and peacefulness and calmness of mind to provide the strength uh, of mind to really develop penetrating insight. Um, the way that the insight practice uh, is often presented in the, the traditional scriptures um, is um, with a, a, a just a very simple investigation of the process of experience. Um, how we see the, the realm of conditions, how we uh, experience the world, um, and we experience the world uh, in many different ways, but primarily through what the the Buddha calls the, the five aggregates of existence, the body itself, these forms, this combination of you know the four elements, uh, air, earth, fire, water. Uh, that makes th- this thing we call the body, um, and then the other kind of uh, uh, heaps or groups of categories of, of experience, uh, more on a mental level, the the, the category of feelings, the, the uh, inherent um, not so much tactile sensation type of feelings or, or emotional kinds of feelings, but more just this feeling of Any experience having a quality of pleasantness, unpleasantness, or neutrality. That's what the Buddha means when he talks about feeling, uh, this sort of aspect of experience. Um, Also, perceptions, the realm of um, uh, experiencing raw data as it comes into us, the process of identification of objects, the development of the objective world around us, Uh, the the recognition. I think a good word is recognition. There's cognition based on memory. So you have recognition uh, based on experience. It's the identification of something based on memory. Like that form that's sitting in front of me is just a visual experience until perception identifies it as a person. So it's recognition. That's perceptual process. Mental formations like thoughts and emotions and uh, volitions, uh, intentions; those are mental formations, and then the experience of consciousness itself. This is the, the the mental realm. These are rough categories of the mental realm. So these are what we call the five aggregates of existence. Uh, this is what gives us the sense of being a human being and being something individual, uh, being a, a being a person. So it's by looking at all of these. Um, aspects of our personal experience and really trying to understand them, investigate them um, along certain lines that gives us this insight uh, that we're talking about. And it's, you know, it's a lifetime of teachings, really. Uh, Kind of trying to sum it up here in 20 minutes or so. (laughs) But just to give people sort of an outline or a hint or, or a reminder, if you've already studied this in, in depth of, of the path. Um, and uh, we take one by one um, these different uh, areas of experience, body of body and mind, and start to investigate them very closely uh, from a still place in the mind. Um, uh, it it's a process of uh, seeing all of these experiences a- along the lines of what he what the Buddha calls the three characteristics. The characteristics of uh, impermanence, the characteristic of unsatisfactoriness, and the characteristic of not-self. So that's anicca, dukkha, and natta. Um, and we take that as our focus in meditation. Um, we take something like the body uh, and from a very still place of mind we investigate the body, um, the characteristics of the body or the experience of the body um, and we reflect on it and, and we notice it in its changeability, we contemplate it in its transience and its impermanence um, and we do it in a very deep way in a very, from a very still place in the mind so that we can see this process of the body, this experience of the body in its arising and in its uh, cessation uh, in the in the moment, right here and now, um, how it's always constantly changing and moving um, uh, and uh, arising and ceasing really as an experience um, and the classic train that the Buddha talks about is is that once there's that deep insight into the transiency or the impermanence of the body um, then there follows the insight of of, uh, unsatisfactoriness that you know um, how can we take refuge uh, in the stability of something like the body or the feelings or the the mind Uh, how can we take refuge in in an apparent stability but realizing um, that it's inherently unstable, if we see it changing, constantly moving, uh, never the same, um, then it's uh, not a place where we want to take refuge, uh, because it won't give us that everlasting or ever or that long long-term sense of of um, satisfactoriness. Um, so we develop the insight into into. The really the unsatisfactoriness of, of any condition, anything that's uh, come into existence by causes and conditions uh, will eventually change, um, and we can't uh, plant our uh, refuge there. Um, and then from the inside into that, those two characteristics of, of anicca and dukkha um, tends to come more of an understanding of the characteristic of anatta, of not-self, of not being actually in control, ultimately of our of our body, of our minds, uh, of the experience—that it's um, something that um, is all uh, uh, a result of causes and conditions—but um, that uh, perception or illusion of um, a sense of self, of me uh, or of mine, or of Myself, um, that's so ingrained. That's kind of the root misperception of experience that almost all of us are are under the sway of uh, most of the time, um, uh, and that that understanding that release from that misperception um, is uh, often the result of of a deep contemplation and a deep understanding of the. Uh, the impermanence and unsatisfactoriness of of uh, conditioned realm. So it's a it's a deep and long um, process, um, but it's one that we can start right here and now. We don't have to wait. We can start bringing these reflections just into our daily life, um, into our daily practice, uh, just by considering them, uh, considering them first on a intellectual level, and then bringing them deeply. Uh, into our practice in periods of meditation, um, and kind of the way that uh, it's described as as working towards this uh ultimate letting go, this ultimate freedom is um, when there arises this um, understanding on a on a deep level of of these three characteristics in in regard to to all of our experience then um not only is there this um, deep sense of, of peace and simplicity that's starting to to come into our experience, um, but there's also um, a natural um, turning away from that which is fool, has been fooling us all the time um, we've been in a way we've been enchanted by the uh, the illusion of stability, of, of, uh, um, of conditions. Um, uh, we've kind of voluntarily entered into this state of, of uh, confusion uh, because it supports our quest for, for happiness in a, in a short-term way. Um, but once we started to see a bit more clearly into it, there, we're not so enchanted by that process anymore. We're not fooled by it. Um, and so the Buddha talks about this quality of disenchantment, not in a negative or an aversive or a, um, avoiding kind of a way, but just sort of as a natural result of realizing that it's not quite working anymore. <laughs> um, and so there comes a, a sense of, of letting go, um, letting go of dependence on that, that realm of conditions uh, for giving us a sense of, of happiness um, and with that kind of sense of disenchantment um, uh, arises a similar quality of dispassion again not of aversion or turning away from or indifference or um, you know, any kind of negative uh, wanting to avoid but just sort of as a natural okay well huh. this isn't this isn't where I want to, to rest, my, uh, rest, my, rest my attention, where I want to uh, hang my hat, so to speak. Um, and um, that sense of disenchantment, dispassion, leads to a real almost, you know, sort of the emotional quality, you know, of, of letting go. Uh, it's just uh, of relinquishment. Um, there's a lot of words that the the Buddha's used uh, in different teachings uh, from the suttas. Um, in the Dhammachaka Sutta, if you've ever been in our community and chanted that with us, that's the first discourse of the Buddha. He talks about this kind of um, release or relinquishment in different terms chago, patinisego, mutti, and alayo, which is sort of this. This giving up, this giving over, handing over, relinquishment, abandonment, um, uh, non-attachment to this, this craving mind, uh, this mind that's always seeking satisfaction in external circumstances, um, whether they be external circumstances of the world or of the activities of the mind. Um, and it's a relinquishment, a giving up, a, a, a letting go, um, of dependence on on these things that we've depended on for so long um, and it's not a, again it's not a an aversion it 's not from a state of aversion but it's from a state of clearly seeing that that's it's it's not going to ultimately give us the sense of peace and happiness that we're that we're looking for um, and then um, the end state of that cultivation is this, um, you know, and it's not something that uh, is is readily seen. It's it, you know, this is a process. Again, and I just want to emphasize: this is for most of us, this is a a lifelong, if not longer, process. <laughs> um, and um, you know, where most of us are at this stage is in the appreciation of the possibility uh, and in the cultivation of these perceptions um, to give us the the faith uh, to keep on moving along that way. Um, but uh, the logical end of staying with the practice and and just sticking with it um, over, over a very long period of time for most of us again is this, um, the logical end is this uh, state of complete freedom when there's nothing else left to lose, nothing else left to give up. Um, uh, Nibbana is, again, the the word that the Buddha uses. Um, So I just wanted to just kind of real briefly um, talk about this and talk about the general process of this investigation, um, uh, this development of what the... uh, Buddha calls you know the wisdom faculty, the seeing seeing the world just as it is uh, without imputing any of our own um, uh, beliefs or or ideas or uh, opinions or views uh, on experience, um, just seeing it in its more basic nature, and really seeing these three qualities, this transiency, this this uh, inherent unsatisfactoriness in that which is unstable uh, and the, the quality of, of, um, of not-self. This isn't uh, a process where there's a, uh, uh, a self or a soul that's in charge uh, directing this process. Um, and with that constant recollection and constant bringing up of those perceptions and contemplations uh, can lead us to this state of of complete letting go, um, uh, which then gives us, as Ajahn Chah said, that complete peace. And uh, a little bit later on when we do another meditation, like I said, I'll just maybe uh, read a few passages from the scriptures that I think are uh, lovely, uh, brief descriptions of how the Buddha refers to those. Uh, uh, insights those uh, realizations um, but for now I'm going to pass it on to Ajahn for a few thoughts on letting go completely
0: First off, you'll have to excuse me. I'm, I feel like I'm losing my voice. Um, <clears throat> so, when we're born into this world, as little babies, um, naked, and with, with five senses, and with a mind, the first thing that starts happening to us is there's contact. We have our senses contact the world. And with that contact, is uh, we start to feel. And we sort of open our eyes, and we move our limbs, and we wiggle. And um, we start to sort of have the sense that this feeling is is good, I like this feeling, and and that feeling is bad, I don't really like that feeling. And um, the days pass, and the mind also has contacts, it has images, memories start to arise based on previous contacts. And the same process kind of goes on. There's mental thoughts and emotions that we like and we don't like. And, and we, make, we make kama. We start kind of moving towards uh, feelings that we like. Start moving towards experiences that we like. And before we know it, we are entwined and enmeshed and entangled in... <clears throat> In a whole world of perceptions and things that we like and don't like and that we're chasing after and we're running away from and we're afraid of and we, uh, we want to get and we want to get rid of. And as we grow up, we, we also live in a world which assails us with all kinds of superficial Perceptions uh, information, kind of superficial sensations, things that we get attached to, things that keep us kind of floating along as the days go by and we don't realize it, but behind moving us throughout this whole process uh, is a kind of craving that's been there since the moment we came into this world and uh, can you hear me fine? fine? I feel like I'm kind of, my voice is sore and I think what's happening, what, often, what is happening to us is, as beings, human beings or even, even other kinds of beings, uh, we get into this cycle where we, we live our life and we create karma. We, we create intentional action in our world. The result of which comes back to us as some kind of feeling, some kind of perception that arises, and we consider that to be the world that we're in. And we don't realize it, that we've created this world that we're in. Uh, We've created it through our past choices, big choices, small choices, infinitesimal choices, but we've created the world that we're in. And as we create karma, we perceive ourselves to be living in a world, and through living in a world, we then respond to it with more karma, And this process goes on and on and on, and I I liken it to a a hamster wheel. A hamster that's just sitting in his little wheel, and he's kind of running and running and running. Uh, And the only thing is, we don't realize that we're in this little hamster wheel. And we kind of have a feeling, at least when we're young anyways, we have a feeling that we're getting somewhere. And um, in actual fact, we're not. We are perpetually in one present moment and we're just creating this illusion of time and we're pretending that we're moving through it. And what keeps the whole process going is this kind of craving. And this craving is like a background thirst or background want. That just permeates the background space. It's sort of like a um, air conditioner <laughs> that you don't really even notice is on until it shuts off, and it's like, ah, oh, isn't that how how lovely that the air conditioner is shut off? At least sound from the pr- perspective of sound. And it's kind of like that with craving. This craving is kind of uh, pushing us, constantly pushing us through, kind of identifying with this body and pushing this like a puppet. Um, moving through life, chasing after experiences, thinking we're getting somewhere only to find that we are coming very close to death and basically we're in the same place we were when we started uh, 80 years ago that is the present moment I mean where else can you get to so uh, this, this process of this is what we call samsara uh, it's a sense of wandering on and uh, the Buddha does teach. It's often common to speak about samsara as uh, simply a one lifetime experience, especially in America. This this notion that rebirth is uh, somehow like a myth, m- uh, mythology, it's a way of some kind of myth that existed in the Buddha's days that he just... Accepted because that was his culture and it doesn't really apply to our culture. Uh, And for me, to me, it makes perfect sense, actually. Um, I I can very much sense how I create my world in this lifetime and how this body, uh, there's, there's a sort of craving that has attached itself to this body. And this body, it's not, I have a very clear sense that this body is not me. Um, I've often said the way I look at it belongs is it doesn't belong to me, it belongs to nature. It's nature's body. And I came out of nature and, or not I came out of nature, but this body came out of nature and this body will return to nature. And this is not a problem. And essentially, as long as this craving that animates and keeps this sort of puppet moving in its hamster wheel is not quietened and is not relinquished it only makes sense that I would grasp at another body to me Uh, in just the same way that I'm constantly grasping at this body in a way which is so deep and so pervasive that it's extremely difficult to see Uh, but it can be seen so this is the process of samsara, and uh, the sense that craving is attaching to body after body after body. And if you really have problems with the notion of rebirth, then that's fine. The Buddha doesn't by any means demand or require that you believe in rebirth. Uh, but he does state it as, as true, and it's up to you how you respond to that, it's up to you. Um, but even if you don't believe in it, it's something you can see in, in this present life, how we grasp at this body. There's a movement of craving which basically has taken this body as its objective counterpart. Um, the body is like just an, simply an objective, an objectification of the craving. Uh, that's why, for instance, in Buddhism there's many different realms. There's human realms, animal realms, heavenly realms, hell realms. And the bodies that are acquired in any given realm reflect the nature of the craving. And I can just think of that. You know how, how the human body, an upright body, it has a certain human quality to it. It's upright. It's, um, it has a capacity for moral responsibility. And you compare that to the mind which is sort of animal-like. And you can almost imagine how certain mind states are, you, know, you can almost imagine how, you know, this mind state is the mind of a, whatever, an animal or, or a, a hungry ghost or uh, a hell being, you know, a person in a very violent, who has a very violent temper. It's a hellish, hellish experience. So like I was saying, the the sense of attachment to the body is so deep and so pervasive that that's uh, what we do in meditation uh, on this level of contemplation is we we learn how to calm the body, still the body, still the mind and, and we bring up the body for contemplation. We bring up how this body does not belong to me, belongs to nature how this body will, will be dead in, in a very short time. And uh, this is not a problem. This is not something to be fearful of. The reason it's not something to be fearful of is because it's not us in the first place. The Buddha has this, uh, this saying, he says, monks, he goes, if somebody were to come, up, come along and gather up all the twigs and leaves um, of this forest and run away with them, would you say, oh my, oh my, they're running away with my body? And uh, the monks say, no. And he says, well, in just the same way, this this body doesn't belong to you. And that's a very nice image. You can think of this body when you're meditating as it's like a tree, it's like a stream. Um, It's a natural process of nature. Um, You can't control it directly. Uh, You can't, for instance, demand that this body not age. or You can't demand that this body not be sick. Um, When this body really wants to pack it in, it's going to pack it in. And there's nothing you can do about it. (laughs) So, the Buddha speaks about... um, the two kinds of darts. Uh, there's the dart, he says, sometimes somebody might have a certain physical pain or even an emotional pain. And, uh, and then based on, say, that physical pain, they, they go into a panic, they start to worry, they get scared, they get averse to it, despair. And he says, this is like somebody who's been struck by one Arrow, um, and then is struck by a second arrow. Have I got that right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I just wonder if I wasn't missing something there. And um, so basically, what, this is what's happening when, we're struck, when we have something like physical pain or the body's aging. This is something we have no control over. This is something that the body's going to do whether we like it or not. Uh, But the second dart is something that we do have control over. It's how we respond to the experience of life. And so long as we sense and take this body to be me, uh, as long as we take this body to be uh, what I am, and that the most important thing in, in my life is to preserve this body and to bring it happiness, then we're going to suffer eventually. So we do things like death contemplation. I mean, I love this contemplation, and uh, it's not out of a sense of morbidity. Uh, death contemplation really makes me appreciate the, the life that I have, the opportunity that I have. It makes me appreciate the fact that uh, that anything that's that's deeply important to me, you know, I I, I better cash in on it. I better pursue it because it's. I don't. This body will be gone in no time, and I don't know what's going to come afterwards. Um, so what is important to me is, is the pursuit of truth and not the truth in some kind of abstract philosophical way, but in a sense of direct realization of some sense of completion. And the hamster wheel doesn't have any completion that just goes and goes and goes. And in anything that you can pursue in the world, science, uh, the arts, um, Psychological health, you know, all these things are, have their role, and, and certainly they, you know, they have some some place in the world. But there's no end to them. And uh, you know what you're doing is like science. I, I say I've said this before. Uh, I think Stephen Hawking. I remember Stephen Hawkins, uh said in the '90s that that he really felt that uh, the physical physics the uh, Uh, The scientific world was on on the verge of actually really getting it. You know, it wasn't, you know, within his lifetime, he felt that they were going to actually kind of have some kind of theory that was going to sum it all up. And even then, you know, this is like, I couldn't believe it. This is like, you know, one of the geniuses of our time saying something like this. And I don't think now he doesn't, he's actually recanted on that as far as I understand. (laughs) And surprise, surprise, I mean... um, I just every theory that you create, what, you, what you've just done is you've come up with a new world, and uh, it may satisfy all the answers for some period of time, but then eventually new questions emerge into that world, which then need answering. And it won't be long before you look back on those old answers that you had, and they're just archaic, you know, and it just kind of doesn't make sense anymore. Same for psychology, you know, for self exploration, um, social. Uh, service, working in the world there's there's so many good things and please don't misunderstand me Uh, these are all wonderful things to embark on uh, in the sense of improving culture and uh, creating a beautiful world to live in especially a world where well I'm inclined to say uh, let me just say where truth is valued and peace is valued and virtue is valued You know, this is a valuable culture, a culture where simply, you know, technology is valued um, to me is a bit of, has a a bit of a sickness to it. It's something which is very obsessed with just, you know, the next generation iPod or the next um, version of something. And there's nothing in it to really celebrate. And I'm amazed that we haven't gotten more sick of it yet because... I remember thinking years ago that, you know, by the, by the year 2000, uh, we'll be so fed up with innovation. <laughs> and it's just simply, I don't see any sign of it uh, <laughs> on the horizon. But where we, we can create a sense of fed-upness with it, and I, I don't mean this... I'm not saying technology is bad either. Please don't get me wrong there. Uh, but it is, in itself, It's empty. So if we're going to be working in, in, in the world, uh, we should reflect on what can we bring to the world, what can we give to the world, uh, as a way of j- cultivating our own heart and, and giving something to the world. And then if it su- succeeds or if it fails, that's actually secondary, to be honest. Um, it's kind of out, our, out of our control, but what we can do is we can try. And, uh, and that, that will make a difference. That will make a difference to others, and that will make a difference to ourselves. Um, but at the end of the day, everybody essentially is on this hamster wheel. And uh, another image that I like is prison. Uh, We're all in prison. And we were born in prison. And we've been raised in prison, but we don't even know it. We've been in prison for so long, and so has everybody else, that we don't even know what it's like to be free. And some people might go around trying to improve the quality of the prison cells for fellow prisoners, and that's not to belittle that project, uh, because I think a lot of good, you know, we can make some prison cells quite comfortable, frankly, but it's still prison. And to be free of prison is to be free of craving, is to get off the wheel and the thing is, you can't do this for anybody else. And this is where we have to be careful, because, um, say, as a, te- as a now myself in this role of teaching Buddhism, um, I can't, you know, I can't free anybody else from their own ignorance and from their own delusion or from their own craving. Just like the Buddha couldn't free any of us, not even the Buddha. Um, I, I like something uh, this Christian philosopher, Kierkegaard, once said, was um, the only thing that we can do for other people is instill a sense of urgency and everything else is up to them. And, and I, I kind of quite agree with that because uh, we can improve conditions for other people, we can, we can improve society, we can create culture, we can do all kinds of things on the external level, but as long as there's ignorance and greed... People are going to continue to suffer and create suffering from themselves, and that's something that they have to take the project upon themselves to be free of. Um, I can't; nobody can free anybody else from from ignorance and from 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 deep. It's not even existential suffering. It's um. It, you know, it's the suffering of, of a craving that is never satiated, that never ever, ever, finishes. Ever. And, uh, so in meditation, uh, contemplation of death is is just one of the many different tools that is used to basically take the craving, which we have almost like, an image of um, craving has just kind of permeated the body and it's just kind of holding on to every pore of the body. You just think about how suddenly, uh, you know, there was an earthquake or something would fall through the ceiling. The whole body would repel, kind of pull back from it in fear. And that whole-bodied fear is actually craving making itself known. So I know people who, who basically kind of insist they're not, they're not afraid of death, you know. Death isn't something that scares them. I have a friend that says this. And um, I I don't believe it. And I think what happens is that the fear of death is simply so... The attachment to the body is so deeply ingrained that it's hard to see. And that takes hard work to get at. Now, freedom from craving is is, uh, equal to freedom from rebirth. Because once crave, it is craving that keeps the process of birth going. And uh, <coughs> sometimes people think, what, what, why would I want to be free of rebirth? I mean, that sounds like a completely sort of, I may as well kill myself sort of thing. It's like, what's the point? Just to be free of rebirth and then there's nothing. Um, that's not, that doesn't sound very inspiring. Um, so this is where the whole notion of letting go a lot, this is kind of what we were doing about an hour ago, this kind of meditation, being free of the five hindrances, comes into play. Because being free of the five hindrances is, is an incredibly rewarding experience. It's incredibly fulfilling. And if you hadn't had that experience, you wouldn't know just how fulfilling it is. And if somebody were to say to you... Um, Look, you know, the, the best, the happiest moments I've had of my life was in meditation, just sitting there still, the mind is peaceful, and I just don't want anything. You know, it doesn't sound, unless you've had that experience, it just doesn't sound that rich. Um, but it is. And so freedom from rebirth, what you start intuiting through the process of meditation, and as you relinquish different kinds of attachments, you sort of start to intuit the logical conclusion of where this is all heading, it's freedom from rebirth. The mind gets scared of that. Attachment gets scared. And that's where we have to trust the experience of relinquishment as opposed to the idea of renunciation. The idea of renunciation may be not so, not so inspiring. I don't know. Depends on your conditioning, but... But the experience of renunciation of real renunciation of the experience of letting go completely is very inspiring and very rewarding and you've got to trust that as you as you go into that experience. Trust it but don't push it because um, I don't think it's never really I don't want to say it's never right it's um, the process is something that this the path. Uh, unfolds naturally and uh, I don't think it's right to push anything. Uh, you don't want to push yourself into renunciation until you feel ready and inspired for it. Um, in Buddhism, there's we speak about three kinds of wisdom. Uh, sutta maya panya, maya panya and pawana Maya panya. These are three kinds of wisdom. And uh, Sutta maya panya means the wisdom or maybe here the knowledge that comes from study. And I, I just, again, I'll put a plug in for this. This is actually really important to be familiar with what the Buddha taught. Because he, he taught something very specific. And as Buddhism comes to the West, uh, I think it's very important that we feel... Um, speaking of somebody here who has a lot of faith in the Buddha, and it's really, it's really essential that we be loyal to what the Buddha actually taught even if you don't particularly believe it at least be able to say right to recognize what he taught and what he didn't teach because <laughs> he taught something very specific something that's very concrete something that we can all understand and so that's a, that's a plug there for a study um, for knowing for understanding the teachings for listening to the teachings and uh I would also say cultivating a sense of love for the teachings as well. And then uh, that's sutta maya panya. Chinta maya panya is sort of the wisdom that comes, you might say, from thinking, from reflecting, from taking what you've heard and studied and exploring it. And a lot of people might, it's very easy to confuse intellectual understanding with insight. Uh, just because you understand something doesn't mean at all that you really understand it. Um, so really the acid test of whether or not you understand the Buddha's teachings is your capacity to let go. And the deeper that you can let go, the deeper is your understanding. And that's that's what we call Pawana mayapanya. Pawana means development, but it So Pavanamaya Panya means wisdom that comes from the experience of cultivating the path. So it's different from thinking. So you start with learning or listening to the teachings, reflecting on the teachings, and then putting them into practice and experiencing the results.
4: See, was there anything else?
0: So, I think that's probably good enough for this <laughs> reflective sec- session. Um, what we're going to do now QA? Yeah,
1: we've kind of moved off the schedule, but uh, let's do some Q and a. a little bit of a QA. Have a time for uh, just some questions along these lines if people have any uh, <clears throat> questions now Ooh, okay <laughs> the first hand up was I think <laughs> right there in the back, in the back. yeah when you're, doing, uh, in the world,
2: uh, when you're speaking about doing certain works in the world when you're about doing certain works in the world um I guess I felt that uh, there wasn't enough emphasis on the fact that uh, the Buddha taught uh, not just to do no harm, but also to relieve suffering. To what? To relieve suffering.
0: Relieve suffering. Relieve suffering. Relieve suffering, right.
2: And uh, much of the work that's done in the world is relieving suffering. You know, people who are surgeons, people who are taking care of the poor, etc., and that being a very important part of the path is my understanding. Would you agree with that?
0: I, I would agree with that. Um, I would agree with that in the sense that it's a part of... I would say it's a part of generosity and, and giving to like the human community or even the global community. Uh, where I would say... Uh, I would qualify that is simply that that is that part of the path uh, has no end to it, has no completion to it. So who could fault? I don't. In no way did I mean. I hope I didn't come across in any way that I was I was belittling or not giving emphasis to that's a very beautiful, important part of living in a family or community. I, I just also want to recognize that it is something that has no end to it. And. Uh, that's that's basically the only thing I'd like to emphasize is that there is no end to it. And in stillness and quietude and in the path to be free of delusion, that's something that there is an end to, a very specific end. And in terms of freeing um, the world from suffering, here I'm speaking now from faith. Uh, I have a very strong faith that to free yourself from delusion is the greatest thing that you can give to the world. Um, and that it's, it's something that's very hard to do. I see this universe as just simply a whole universe of, of beings everywhere all caught up in delusion. And sometimes that delusion, you say, is, there's a lot of good works going on. There's also a lot of bad works going on. And if you think that you'll never be part of that, bad, the bad works... Uh, I, I'd take, I think we will be if we we're reborn. There's this, um, if you don't mind me kind of shocking you for a moment, there's this quote from the Buddha, a little-known quote uh, that actually is worth thinking about. He says, monks, which do you think is greater, the water in the four oceans or the blood that you've lost in previous lives through being beheaded? And that's, the reason that's a valuable, he goes, and of course the monks say, well, as I understand the, the teachings, we've lost more blood in previous lives through being beheaded than we, there is water in the four great oceans. And he says, this is correct. Actually, this is correct. And the reason that's a valuable reflection is because, say right now, I have a, we have a heart, I assume, that loves the good, that wants to help, be, help others, but we're in a precarious situation, and there's, there's no telling how long that will be there for. And as long as we're in the process of birth and death and birth and death and transformation we're going to go through sometimes heaven realms sometimes hell realms and even our moral being will undergo transformation sometimes for the good sometimes for the bad so that you can you start to sense how that process of birth and death and birth and death is actually very is quite a dangerous process and to free ourselves from the delusion that keeps that process going is is uh, is something that that is it's hard to even appreciate in this universe, um, let alone accomplish. So that's those are my thoughts. Thank you. You're welcome.
3: I'm so confused. I don't know where to start, but. Um, <laughs> Let me just ask you this. If the way to break the cycle of rebirth, samsara, is through um, believing in the experience of renunciation, Um, what we do in meditation is an embodied practice, um, as I understand it. So we always have an object to our meditation, whether it's sensations or the breath. It's something that ties us to a body, ties us to the physical so how do you reconcile those?
0: Meditation is something that ties us to the physical.
3: Right, because I'm, as I meditate, there is always some awareness of some, something that is physical, whether it's my breath, um, a thought, some sensation. It's not, I can't meditate without some object.
0: Okay. I I'll agree with that. Um I don't see the contradiction. Um renunciation by renunciation what I mean is any sense of craving or attachment that might hold on to an object or want to preserve it or possess it. That's what renunciation is let, is letting go of that. So objects they will they will move through consciousness and
3: how do you renounce your body when that's how you experience um, your awareness that 's the object of your awareness on some on some level and you can call it different names, but it 's always tied to something physical
0: Well, all I can say is that uh, in meditation when when there's a sense of the body not being self when there's a sense that this body uh, This body is something that is moving through awareness. This body is changing. Uh, There's nothing in this body that I can hold on to as being mine. There's a sense of release from the body, a sense of disentangling from the body. I'm not saying the body disappears, although that actually can also happen, perhaps. But that's not what I'm saying here. What I'm saying is that there's a sense of attachment pulling back from the body. And the body is one is released from the body, and whether the body is there or not becomes a non issue. That's all I'm saying.
3: Thank you.
5: Hi, Um, I wanted to say that some years ago. I actually had that experience of having moved through something and everything fell away. And it was just amazing. And then life happened (laughs) and it kind of went away. And could you speak more to that? I mean, the way I understand it is the title of Jack Cornfield's book after the enlightenment the dishes or the laundry or whatever it is <laughs> you know but, but for me it's like <laughs> after that kind of wow experience of just being so, in tune, so part of everything um, it, it kind of all shut down for me that's just, that's something else. But I guess I'm wondering, is, is that something that you've heard about, that people kind of come into that or, or let go and then come back and let go and come back? Is that something that happens to people who are monastic? It's not like you have one moment of enlightenment and then you're done. You still have a body, you're still alive, you're still going to deal with stuff, Right. Anyway, Absolutely.
1: That's you question. <laughs> it's a good question, um, uh, and you know it's hard to be able to to remark specifically on your experience, not being inside your body and, <laughs> and you know knowing exactly what it was that you experienced in that moment. Um, uh, there's many uh, many things that. Can um, result in experiences and we're not quite sure what they are and we think well maybe it is a moment of experiencing uh, the deathless or enlightenment or, and there's lots of books that talk about momentary enlightenment and, and different things like that there's also um, a lot of teachings uh, and people that point to um, uh, the fact that some of these experiences may be more along the lines of deep experiences of concentration or uh, moments of insight um, uh, in seeing certain truths, Um, and whether they're actually experiences of of enlightenment, um, not so sure. So there's a lot of different takes on on what these kinds of experiences might be, and it's really hard to, you know, uh, from the outside to kind of make any kind of judgment about what that might be. Um, what's often described uh, in terms of progress along the path, particularly in terms of the what they call the fruition attainments, which is you know, um, a true experience of, of, of the deathless or of nirvana, um as the moment of entering the stream, um, when that is uh, really seen clearly uh, certain. Obstacles, fetters are so totally let go of that there is a, a you know, uh, an experience of um, uh, such strength that there's no turning back. Um, you know, uh, what they call entering the stream. Um, then that's the kind of insight or realization that doesn't really disappear from that. Point on. It's like, uh, okay, I have you know, I've seen it clearly enough and experienced it deeply enough that there's there's you know I know there's no turning back. There's no moving away from that insight. Um, there's a deep sense of ah, okay. Uh, there's a lot more work to do still because. Um, there's, you know, still a lot of underlying tendencies towards towards greed and towards aversion and, and confusion um, all the way up until, you know, final and full enlightenment. Uh, but there's a sense of no turning back. So I guess my sense is, from what I understand, that if there is a, even a very deep experience, uh, possibly from concentration or possibly of insight, um, which is an incredibly strong and beautiful type of experience, if it doesn't result in that sense of certainty, you know, in that sense of of no turning back uh, and, and utmost clarity, then um, I would be hesitant to call it, you know, anything along the lines of enlightenment. Um, <laughs> so that's just a, you know... A, A reflection from my own understanding of the path and the teachings Um, and it's not I'm not saying that there aren't other people that would explain it or talk about it in different words you know the whole concept of momentary enlightenment and and uh, what whatnot so that's just my particular perspective
3: Did
2: I understand you correctly? I mean, what you said a few minutes ago was kind of like an arrow between the brows. What I heard you say <laughs> was that essentially I, and each I, uh, is a loose cannon. And um, what you said was we have no control if we're reborn over what sort of a critter we turn into. In that life, that's a pretty terrifying thought, Uh, (laughs) talk about motivating, but I I hear it as being equally true within this one lifetime.
0: Yeah, I would agree. Yes, I would say it is equally true, and that's why, on the one hand, it, it really is motivating, and in fact, a really sensible way of understanding the universe, for me anyways, uh, the whole notion of rebirth. But if anybody were to come up to me and say, look, I just this, no, this notion of rebirth is just, I can't accept it. I'd say that's totally not a problem. And uh, I think you can see that process within, within one lifetime, um, moment to moment. I would qualify that in the sense that if we just look within the time span of from birth to death, when you take into the notion of multiple lives, you can understand how certain experiences might have their roots in past lives. So, just for example, I mean, it's a common... Like, why, you know, when great suffering falls upon us, the, the question that often arises is, why me? And that really is... I've experienced it myself. Why me? This really isn't fair. And let's just say, if there was an all-powerful God, I'd be pretty upset. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, and so, my point is that, um, again, I, I, it's, not, it's not necessary to have an explanation, uh, but to me, it's a satisfactory way of understanding the universe, uh, this, the notion of rebirth, and to me, it's totally satisfactory. And it is actually terrifying. I mean, there, there are ways in which the Buddha speaks about it, where he really does want to encourage um, a sense just how incredibly valuable this human life is that we have. And it's actually quite rare in the universe. You know, this is one of the, the notions that are, that, you know, it's one of the logical implications of rebirth, you know, you look at the number of beings there are in the universe and why, why, why am I a human being? Why am I in this country and not in some third world country? Why do I have a family which is, you know, if not a good, very good family, certainly good enough, you know, quite a loving family or something like that, or a culture which is healthy, more or less. Um, you know, from the karmic perspective, well, it makes sense. It's, it's basically the result of my choices over lifetimes um and who knows you know rebirth is is an uncertain place and when it comes time to die it would be a mistake to think you can just choose it's like well geez I, you know i think i'd like to be born as a you know in this country or in, in that world it doesn't quite work that way uh you know essentially what happens is that there's uh in my understanding a grasping at the moment of death which is conditioned by an entire lifetime of of choices you know you you create habit after habit after habit day after day week after week month after month year after year for eighty years, and you're, you're the habit of your, your mom, there's a momentum there a karmic momentum, and you just can't simply suddenly say okay I'm, I'm going to choose choose this. What happens is that karmic momentum carries on. So that's why we want to. Whether you believe that in life after life or simply in this one life. You know, let's, let's recognize the reality of the karmic momentum and see what we can do to get it going in a good direction. Okay, well, I think lots of questions here. How long
3: do you want to go on? To four. I just was thinking when you were speaking about um, if we work on our mind and our work in the world as part of our meditation... And everything we do. Why can't our work in the world become enlightening? Why can't we be enlightened by what we do if we pay attention to it and it becomes our freedom? It be- frees us from, the, from a desire. If, we, if our work is karma, karma yoga and we can work towards letting go each time we do the work, every work we do and every relationship we're in, and everything we do, isn't doing as good as being?
1: Do you want to answer that? Sure. Um, the work we do in the world, the way we live in the world, it's right livelihood, and that's one of the aspects of the Eightfold Path. That's The Buddha's divides up his path of practice into the Eightfold Path, and right livelihood is clearly one of them. Um So whether it's work in the world, work as a monastic, the livelihood, the form we choose, there's different ways that uh, one engages in right livelihood um, and that's clearly um, part of the vehicle for for liberation. Um, it isn't enlightenment itself. Um, none of the factors of the Eightfold Path are enlightenment itself, you know whether it's right view, right action, right speech, right livelihood, right uh, uh, effort, right uh, mindfulness, right concentration. All of these things that the Buddha talks about as factors of the path are part of this raft that we're we're uh, putting ourselves onto. Uh, and this raft is something that we enter into fully and jump on to cross the stream. Once we get to the other side of the stream we don't carry the raft with us anymore. You know, we can set it down. Uh, and the work is complete. Um, so, uh, and that includes the work, the way we are in the world, the way we work in the world. So what we're doing with right livelihood, with offering service to the world, um, offering generosity, an example of, of moral uprightness, of concern for the welfare of other beings and acting on that, those are all part of developing skillful means Um, meditation is development of skillful means Um, all the aspects of speech and action in the world refraining from harming those are all skillful means Uh, sticking with it developing effort maintaining that that path is skillful means and contemplation developing insight just as we've been talking about it's all skillful means all of these together Um, are parts of the practice that we take up and engage with um, and enter into wholeheartedly. As the process matures um, uh, and as the insight deepens and as the uh, understanding and wisdom deepens, then we start to actually let go of all of these parts of the practice uh, as... uh, Uh, as uh, we don't think of them, we don't regard them as ends into themselves. They're just part of a process of skillful means to the point where we can let go of all means, you know, all actions, all uh, ways of being, of of, of acting in the world and of, of practicing the path. At some point, all of it we realize is part of conditions, even if it's skillful conditions that are leading us to the ending of the conditions. So we pick it up, we engage with it, we use it in just the way you're talking about, engaging in the world in useful ways as part of the path, but they are not the culmination of the path. We have to let them go in the very final phase as well. Who's got the microphone? Somebody way back there.
5: Hi. Um, I recently, well, several months ago, made it a conscious decision to deviate away from what I had been taught as a child and that initially is what I thought was going to be my uphill battle spiritually and then the further I go the more I realize that that uphill battle is something that really happens from within myself and I'm finding that I have these conflicting elements. I have the external and I have the internal. And when it really becomes a problem is when I start to have them overlap with each other. So how do I keep those two elements separate so I can deal with them best?
0: No, no, no. No, I'm I'm not sure I I quite understand. So you've got... You're kind of raised in one way and you... Uh, made a conscious choice that you had to to choose another path. Is that correct? Something like that? May I just speak generally and see if it, it may or may not address exactly what you said because I'm not really clear. What... I am just going to say about um, how important it is sometimes uh, that the path, spiritual path, is sometimes a lonely one. And sometimes you'll have the sense that you've got to go in a different direction that nobody else is going or that nobody seems to understand. And I think the best way I can speak about this, because when you're talking about this, uh, what do you take as your standard? Um, All you can do is rely on uh, your qualities of, your intuition of what is true and your intuition of what is good. And... uh, simply follow that and that may mean following that and just simply frankly just throwing everything else to the wind and just being committed to what is true and good and but true and that doesn't mean just what you think is true it means also committed to the process of learning what is true because you can be sure that whatever you think is true is not is not true and that goes for me as well I'm not saying that in a derogatory way um and the same with what is good. I mean, what is good is a process of learning and, and uh, learning what is the nature of goodness and what is the nature of suffering, because suffering is what defines goodness in the sense that goodness alleviates suffering. So it's a whole path. And uh, when you're not yet committed to... When you don't yet know the... What I'm trying to say is if you're sort of new to Buddhism and you don't know what standard to take... Then I would just say truth and goodness; those are the two principles to to go with. Uh, and it's not that if you are a Buddhist, then suddenly truth and goodness don't don't apply. I'm not saying that, but I'm saying if you already if you are, like for instance, once you're committed to. Um, once you're committed to the Eightfold Path, I might sometimes encourage just simply things based on faith. For instance, like there's there's so much in the buddhist teachings is worthy of faith but if you don't yet have faith in in it you can't bring that up as a standard to for uh committing yourself to something so uh and if there's yet no faith in in the in the triple gem um then that's fine but then what i would say is truth and, truth and goodness
1: and just along the lines of like external versus internal you know sometimes i think we make a sort of an unnatural dichotomy between the two you know sort of we think you know external circumstances uh, you know cause a certain conditioning uh, in inside ourselves and in terms of the inside Um, and therefore we have to deal with it on the inside um, as as the real the real way to handle those kinds of conditions that have affected us uh, through life Um, but they really work back and forth. You know, we need to develop, again, skillful means, uh, both in the external and in the internal world. You know, The internal world of our thoughts and feelings and emotions and reactions, we get to know those and we develop ways to deal with them skillfully. External circumstances the same way. You know, if external circumstances are causing pain or difficulty or you know, conditioning in certain ways that we don't like we have to attend to them in the same ways with mindfulness and, and wisdom. Um, so whether it's internal or external, realizing what the results are of believing in them, acting on them, reacting to them, um, uh, uh, whether it's internal or external, it's how we, how we handle that which comes to us. Um, it's how we deal with uh, the world as it presents itself self to us, whether it's the internal world or the external world. Um, And we create structures both internally and externally that are supportive uh, in moving in wholesome directions.
0: He's been wanting to ask something for a long time. I think maybe this should be our last question. Okay, this will be our last um, question um, for now.
2: Okay. Okay. there was, you know, talking about theories of everything, there was a scientist and friend of Einstein, a mathematician, Kurt Gödel, that came up with this incompleteness theorem uh, that basically says a lot of things are undecidable or not provable, you know, things that are true that we can't get to with with our minds, with thought, with logic, with um, any kind of analysis. And um, And I say that because when I was walking outside, I had... You know, Donovan's song, first there is a mountain, then there is no mountain, then there is, going through my head a little bit. So and I've often wondered, you know, what does that really mean? You know? Is is Buddha a nihilist or or is the truth just undecidable and we have to just sort of drop everything and let go and land on top of it or, or something like that.
0: Um well let's see. There's a lot there. Right As soon as you get into thought, uh, it's endless, basically. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, yeah, so um, there, there is an end, a very concrete end, an object and goal, to the Buddhist path, but it, it's not found in the intellectual realm. But the intellect can certainly serve as a sort of beacon, uh, cultivating certain perceptions based on the intellect which will guide us in certain directions, which are wholesome. So, uh, the theorem that you were just speaking of, that can be a very useful if you're an intellectual type of person to basically to cut through any faith that you have in the intellect. Mm. <laughs> and so, in that sense, it's a very useful kind of theory um, for intellectual types. Um, and, yeah, so the, it, that's, that's, uh, that's um, I'm not sure if that answered your question. but
2: <laughs> Yeah, it's just this, when you let go, do you land on the ground? I mean, is there some ultimate reality, or, or is, is it all sort of... Oh, I see. Yeah.
0: Yeah, well, basically, the most important thing to know is that when there's letting go, there's freedom from suffering. Right. And, however, you, if you start thinking, well, is that, you know, is that something or is that nothing? Well, no, it's, it's neither. It's kind of beyond those two extremes. Something or nothing are, are intellectual. They're concepts. And when there's freedom from suffering, it's a kind of letting go from that. And that's all that matters, is freedom from suffering. And you might think, well, look, I don't want freedom from suffering. I just want to be happy. <laughs> and, uh, and so this is where I say, like the faith, the gradual path, uh, it's like you, you say, okay, wait a minute. Uh... Let's just put that aside for now if you have doubt about the validity or the, the value of such a goal and just walk the path gradually. And basically life moves towards greater simplicity, greater peace, greater well-being, greater understanding. And you recognize, you know, this is going in a totally legitimate way. But it also means essentially throwing everything out that I valued before. So you start you, you do come across these kind of frightening experiences. It's like, well, wait a minute, if I keep going this way... I'm going to be totally fulfilled, totally happy, totally complete. But it means letting go of everything I thought was meaningful before. But that's a grad, you don't want to do that in advance. You can scare yourself off and then throw the whole thing out the window. So you just want to do it gradually, slowly, gently, and in a way that's um, sustainable.
1: very Why don't we? Um call it an end for the questions and answers right now. We might have a little bit of time towards the end for a few last ones, depending on how it goes. Um, I'd like to suggest that just a very short, quiet break right now. So if people just want to stand up for two or three minutes, stretch their legs, or use the restroom, but try and keep it silent just for this break. Try and keep it silent, not engage, Try and keep the quiet momentum inside and come back uh, for a, a meditation.